My wife Brandy and I grew up in a little town in Oklahoma of about 1,500 people. Tiny, out of the way, and obscure in basically every way. But in the last couple of years, Hollywood actually came to our little town. A best-selling book called The Killers of the Flower Moon were written about some events that happened in our town and surrounding areas. And, and then a movie was made just in the last couple of years. The county we live in, Osage County, was originally the Osage Nation, the tribe, the Osage Tribes Reservation. They were moved there in the 1870s. But in the 1890s, a significant oil reserve was discovered underneath the ground. The tribe maintained mineral rights from that, so very quickly, this small tribe became, per capita for a time, the richest people on the planet. With that came many challenges, and in time, by the early 1920s, there were a shocking number of murders occurring within the tribe. At least 60 of a tribe of just a few thousand, and likely more were killed. Often what would happen is an Osage woman was married by a white man, and then eventually, through mysterious or obvious killing, she died, and then he would take all of her wealth. But sadly, local law enforcement, at best, looked the other way, but other times actually were a part of this destructive killing. Corruption ran all the way up into state government, so the state government also did not do anything to stop this. Eventually, it would take federal officers who would come and to expose what was happening. Now, surely not everyone who was living in that area were a part of this killing, but there was a, a broader injustice as well. We're often local, non-Osage, white merchants knew the Osages had more money, so there would often be two prices for something or for a service a higher price for the Osages because they were known to have more wealth. The federal government at the time required that each Osage to have a guardian, someone outside of themselves who would oversee their money because they considered them to be incompetent. In fact, not fully a person, which led to also abuses of those funds that were available. The fact is it's a truly horrific story in history. My wife Brandy, her family, and thus our kids are a part of the Osage tribe. My family's not. I have no uh, Osage blood in me, but, but my family did live there at the same time on my dad's side. So my great-grandfather lived there just as her great-grandparents were living there as well. My great-grandfather actually was one of those guardians who had that role. And I've learned more about the story of what happened during those years. I've wondered why didn't more non-Osages speak up? Why didn't people speak up for justice? It's now clear how deep and wide the corruption was. The fact is it would not have been hard to see unless they didn't want to see it. The fact is apparently most people, the vast majority, just didn't want to see was happening. And so I thought, what would it have been like if it had I lived there then? Would I have spoken up? Would I have been a voice for justice? For these who are being treated as if they're not fully a person, for, for those who are enduring injustice and even losing their lives. And the fact is, I would like to believe I would have spoken up. I'd like to believe that even if most of the society there locally was moving in one direction, I would have had the courage to Stand up for the lives of others. But I'm not sure that I would have. I wonder if you ever think about moments in history in the world or in our country where there was opportunity or need for someone to stand up for others. And have you ever wondered, would you have stood up for them? Nazi Germany, slavery. Would you have the courage, you think, to stand up, to speak up for justice for others? And today we're going to consider if we might be in such a moment now, today. This morning we're in the fourth week of a five-week series that we've been calling Embodied. The first week we looked at created persons. The second week, worshiping persons. The third week, gendered persons. Today, we'll look at the littlest 
persons, and the next week, dying persons. That after this series, we'll return to the book of 1 Samuel, smooth sailing, no controversy, easy topics. I look forward to that day. But today, we're considering the littlest persons. By that, we mean the unborn child and the reality of abortion. Now, I would guess that some of you immediately think, I, I wish you wouldn't go there. Maybe you've newer to hope, you've begun to like this church. You're like, well, why then push kind of right-wing politics? Or you might think I was already skeptical of church in general or this church. And now you just know this place can't be the place for you. Friends, if that's what you're thinking this morning, I want to ask you to, to just stay with me for these next minutes. I realize to be pro-choice is the overwhelming view in our city. And it's almost honestly unquestioned completely. We are a city that loves to think. We say we love logic. We love facts. So I want to encourage you at least consider this case with me this morning. And friend, if you do already oppose abortion, I hope that during our time you'll be reminded, renewed, but also reinvigorated. It's very possible to be persuaded, but perhaps unengaged, convinced of a certain view, but unwilling to actually take action. So if you have a Bible this morning, turn to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 139. Today we'll be in Psalm 139. The Bible's near you. You can find it on page 521. Page 521. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you today. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter or Psalm 139. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll start in verse 13. We'll work our way through verse 16. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. At the back of the room, there's a table. There's a sign that says free Bibles. We'd love for you following the service. Stop by, grab one of those Bibles, and take it with you as our gift to you today. Now, the first week of the series, we said this. You were created by God as an embodied person to live wisely and hopefully in the world. And over these weeks since then, we've basically been thinking through what are some, some of the areas that we, we must seek to do this and what are some areas where it's honestly difficult to do it today in our society. We continue to look at that this morning. So Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book are written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Today, I hope we'll see that every person, no matter their age, has value and dignity because they are formed by God and known by God. Every person, no matter their age, has value and dignity because they are formed by God and known by God. So, morning, we'll, we'll look at our brief passage. We'll also look more broadly at some of what the Bible says and what the earliest Christians thought. And we'll think about some of the implications, some of the questions related to this issue. Now, in our text, we see that David, who's the king of Israel, writes this psalm as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it gives to us some substantial principles. We see that People, we, are formed by God. Look at verse 13. He says of God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, there's more than one layer to this. So, so one, God created the amazing biological process by which a man and a woman can come together. And from this comes a new and distinct life. I mean, it's a truly remarkable thing. Every time it happens, a new life is formed. Within the mother, a baby is born. And God designed that process. But even as David is saying that, he's also saying more than that. He's saying that in addition to the biological process by which a person comes about, that God himself is engaged in the formation of a new person. 
certainly poetic language that David is using here, but he's communicating a real story that there's a way in which God's hand is at work in the formation of every baby in the womb, the formation of every human life. So David continues, verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So because of who the creator of this life is, the God of the universe, this is true of every person. You are fearfully, you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. David then goes on to speak of how God was at work forming him in the womb, how it was hidden, it was unseen. So in the world of that day, the development and birth of a child was a much greater mystery than it is today. There was there's no wonderful machine like an ultrasound, even though we have today. And when David says in verse 14 that he was woven in the depths of the earth, he's, he's describing the, the darkest place possible to describe the womb where there is no light. The world of our day, we know so much more through ultrasound machines, through even 3D versions of those. We also see that people are known by God, as we see in verse 16. He says that every one of his days were written in God's book before he was even formed. So David is saying he, he was not some nameless collection of cells. No, he was a person that God knew, that God made. And God's people have always believed that all people have dignity and value because they are formed by God and they are known by God. And the Christian worldview isn't based only on this text, but it's woven across the scriptures. As we've seen in the series, in the very beginning, Genesis 1, 27 tells us this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All humans are created in the image of God, and therefore all humans have dignity, value, significance. No matter their age, no matter their size, no matter their health, no matter what disabilities they might have. Now, there certainly have been times in history where Christians failed to live up to that. Absolutely times when Christians did ungodly things, disrespecting image bearers. But in fact, their actions are critiqued by God's word. They were not living in line with God's word. They were living contrary to them. God's word is clear. This is how we are to always view every image error. You might think, well, isn't the, the Christian interest in abortion really a, a more recent, modern thing? Isn't this a fairly recent development? But in fact, historically, that's just not true. This outlook that I just alluded to shaped the earliest Christians living in first century Rome. They embraced this view, and they were also compelled to not only hold the view, but to take action. As they knew God's word, for instance, like Psalm 82, verse 3 and 4, that says this. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So they saw this, this was the heart of their heavenly father and therefore it was to be their heart as well, to care for the weak, all the weak and the fatherless. To care so much to be willing to rescue those who are weak and needy. Now this was a truly countercultural view in the first century Roman Empire where abortion and especially the practice of abandoning infants was very common. So if a family, a person had a child, they did not want it, could be a toddler, could legally just be abandoned, I mean, what they call exposure, just left to die. Tom Holland is a historian who's not a professing Christian, but has written a, a relatively recent book that I come into called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And here's what Holland writes. Across the Roman world, wailing at the sides of the roads or on rubbish heaps, Babies abandoned by their parents were a common sight. Others might be dropped down drains there to perish in the hundred. The odd eccentric philosopher aside, few had ever queried this practice. Indeed, there were cities who by ancient law had made a positive virtue of it, condemning to death deformed infants for the good of the state. Sparta, one of the most celebrated cities in Greece, 
had become the epitome of this policy, and Aristotle himself had lent it the full weight of prestige. Girls, in particular, were liable to be winnowed ruthlessly. Those who were rescued from the wayside would invariably be raised as slaves. Brothels were full of women who, as infants, had been abandoned by their parents, so much so that it had long provided novelists with a staple of their fiction. Only a few people, the odd German tribe, and inevitably the Jews, had stood aloof from the exposure of unwanted children. Pretty much everyone else had always taken it for granted until that was the emergence of a Christian people. The earliest Christians, we have records of them speaking and writing against these practices. They also themselves refused to practice this themselves. And then when they could, they would take in some of these abandoned infants who were destined to die, who were destined to be enslaved and bring them into their own families. And in time, in response to the way that they were living, eventually their actions transformed society. And these practices were eventually outlawed and then even more became unthinkable. So that even the thought of this today just seems outrageous to us to even imagine this could be possible in the world. So it's hard for us to imagine when infants could be treated this way, a one-year-old. But I'm going to ask you to imagine that. Try to imagine what it would be like if you're walking down the street on the way to the market and over on the rubbish heap, a collection of one-year-olds who've been abandoned to die by their parents. And there along the river under the tree, another group of abandoned infants. I wonder if you live then would you have done? Would we have fallen in line with the dominant thread of society? Would we have sought to rescue the weak and the needy? I know what I'd like to think I would have done. But I do wonder, would I have had the clarity and the courage to do so? Unfortunately, infanticide doesn't happen in our society today, but abortion, which has actually so many similarities, is so very prevalent today. So let's consider a few questions related to abortion. First, what do we mean by this term, abortion? The Oxford Dictionary defines it this way, the, the deliberate termination of a human pregnancy. And by this, we're speaking about today elective abortions. There are such things as spontaneous abortions. A pregnant woman that, that for some reason, her health, the health of the baby, might spontaneously, naturally be aborted. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about elective. There's something, someone from the outside is intervening to end the life of the unborn. But the most important question is, what is being aborted? Here we really come to the central clarifying question of the whole discussion. A guy named Scott Klusendorf has written a, a helpful little book called The Case for Life. And he narrows down the conversation by urging us to focus on this one question, that is, what is the unborn, or simply, what is it? What is it that's inside the mother's womb? So what does science say? How does science answer the question of what is in the mother's womb? Well, in 1981, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Subcommittee received testimony related to this topic, and, and this is their document, the, the report that came from it. Here's part of what the report says. Physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of the life of a human being, a being that is alive, is a member of the human species. There is overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, biological, and scientific writings. A leading embryology textbook says it this way, human development begins at fertilization when a sperm fuses with an oocyte to become a single cell, the zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. Now, sometimes in the discussion, 
people can get a little bit confused because we hear the term embryo and the term fetus and, and can think of those as a distinctly different object than we are. But the word embryo and fetus simply des- describe stages of development, and they can be used for other species as well. So as an embryo, as it gets older, it becomes a fetus. So what we're talking about is not just embryos in general, but a human embryo that all of you once were. Every one of us were at one point a human embryo. And then with development, we became a human fetus. So it's not that you came from an embryo, it's that you were an embryo. You were a fetus. It's just a part of human development. So science says that a human life, a unique individual, is present from the time of conception. Now, we in Boston like to say, follow the science. And there's wisdom in that often. The question is, are we willing to follow the science here? Or only selectively? But some will say, well, the unborn child, yes, is human, but the unborn child is not yet a person. Princeton professor Peter Singer and others with a similar view argue that a person is someone who must be conscious, rational, and self-aware. And they say a fetus is not those things. And we would agree, that's true. But the fetus, unless someone intervenes, with some time will become conscious, rational, and self-aware. But based on their own criteria of that being required, the fact is a newborn infant outside of the womb that's six weeks old, six months old, also would not be conscious, rational, and self-aware. So in order to be consistent, they would need to apply those same standards to a newborn as they would to a preborn child. Now, Singer, to his credit, he agrees. He, in fact, is supportive of giving the right for a mother to have her child put to death after birth. I obviously don't agree with him, but I at least ad- admire the consistency. For he's, he's holding to his view at each stage. In 2012, a medical ethicist, Alberto Giobellini and Francesco Minerva, published a paper in the Journal of Medical Ethics arguing that both fetuses and newborns do not have the same moral status as actual persons. So, they say, after birth abortion, meaning killing a newborn, should be permissible in all cases where abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. So they're making the same argument as Singer. Now, most pro-choice advocates won't go this far, but in fact, aren't they actually being consistent with this argument, if that's what's essential to be a person? Well, what about leading supporters of abortion rights? What what do they say? Bernard Nathanson was the co-founder of an organization called NARAL, which is one of the most influential abortion rights advocacy groups He also served for a long time as the medical director of one of the largest abortion clinics in the U.S., and here's what he wrote. There's simply no doubt that even the early embryo is a human being. All its genetic coding, all its features are indisputably human. As to being, there's no doubt that it exists, is alive, is self-directed, and is not the same being as the mother, and is therefore a unified whole. Another abortion rights supporter, Camille Paglia, writes this in Salon Magazine. I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of unfeeling tissue. Then Naomi Wolf, who's a prominent author, abortion supporter, she writes this. Clinging to a rhetoric about abortion in which there is no life and death, we entangle our beliefs in a series of self-delusions, fibs, and evasions. And we risk becoming precisely what our critics charge us with being, callous, selfish, and casually destructive men and women who share a cheapened view of human life. 
We need to contextualize the fight to defend abortion rights within a moral framework that admits that the death of a fetus is a real death. So do you hear what they're saying? These are prominent defenders of abortion rights publicly admitting, asserting, that abortion kills distinct human beings. They're not saying abortion is morally defensible because it doesn't kill a human being. That's not their argument. They're admitting abortion does kill a distinct human entity, but still argue that it's morally defensible anyway. Friend, if today you consider yourself to be pro-choice, I wonder if you've heard statements like those. Would you be in agreement with them? What about courts and medical professionals in other circumstances? Well, if a woman was pregnant and she was driving to an abortion clinic to have an abortion, and a drunk driver hit her car, and through that accident, the unborn baby died, the woman would be charged with manslaughter. Your courts would say, there's a human in there that was In our city, on the same street, you could have two different facilities. You could have two babies of the same age go into them on the same day. One of them aborted. The other, surgical procedures done to preserve life. That baby considered a patient. Why? Because it's a person. So medical professionals in our courts in basically every other circumstance, understand that it's an individual human, a person, it's a child. What does our society just broadly think in daily living? A couple of years ago, sadly, Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, shared that she'd had a miscarriage. And she wrote an op-ed, really quite moving, in the New York Times. And here's part of what she wrote. It was a July morning that began as ordinarily as any other day, make breakfast, feed the dogs, take vitamins, find that missing sock, pick up the rogue crayon that rolled under the table, throw my hair in a ponytail before getting my son from his crib. And changing his diaper, I felt a sharp cramp. I dropped to the floor with him in my arms, humming a lullaby to keep us both calm. The cheerful tune of stark contrast to my sense that something was not right. I knew as I clutched my firstborn child that I was losing my second. Megan was so tragically losing her second child who was inside of her who had not yet been born. And nearly every person in the world who heard the story mourned with her. Because we agreed with her, it was sad that she was losing her unborn child. What about just our own hearts and minds in daily living? If you were sitting in a coffee shop and, and someone who was sitting with you, a, a woman walked in who was clearly in every way pregnant, and they said to you, well, what's inside her stomach? Every one of us would say, it's a baby. If you asked her, I wouldn't suggest it, but if you asked her, What's in your stomach? She would say, it's a baby. I've never heard someone say, well, it's a fetus that has the potential to eventually be a person. It's a fetus that perhaps will become a child. No, in every other circumstance, except for this discussion, we say, of course, it's a baby. It's a child. And friend, if you've ever seen an ultrasound, you know it's a person, it's a child. And if you're unconvinced, I'd like to ask you to do some research this week. I urge you, go online, look at some photos of a baby at five weeks, at seven weeks, at 20 weeks, and decide if it's a person. The fact is, those images are powerful. There's a reason why pro-abortion groups work hard to keep those images from being hung up, for instance, on college campuses. Because they're moving, they're convincing. 
There's a reason that most abortion providers do not want the mother who's pregnant to see an ultrasound because so often if they see their baby in the ultrasound, they won't go forward with the abortion. Author by the name of Caitlin Flanagan, who she herself is in favor of abortion, she wrote this in The Atlantic. A picture of a 12-week fetus is a Rorschach test. Some people say that such an image doesn't trouble them, that the fetus suggests the possibility of a developed baby, but is far too removed from one to give them pause. I envy them. When I see that image, I have the opposite reaction. I think here's one of us. Here's a baby. She has fingers and toes, by now eyelids and ears. She can hiccup that tiny chest-quaking motion that all parents know. Most fearfully, she's starting to get a distinct profile, her one and only face emerging. Each of these 12-week fetuses bears its own particular code. This one bound to be good at music, this one destined for a life of impatience, tap, tap, tapping his pencil on the desk, waiting for recess. What I can't face about abortion is the reality of it, that these are human beings, the most vulnerable among us, and we have no care for them. How terrible to know that in the space of an hour, a baby could be alive, his heart beating, his kidneys creating the urine that becomes the amniotic fluid of his safe home, and then be dead. His heart stopped, his body soon to be discarded. So what is it? What is the unborn? Friends, the unborn are distinct, living, whole human beings. It's a person. It's a child. And how we answer that, if it is a distinct, living, whole human being who's a person and a child, must drastically affect how we think about abortion. But I think it's fair to ask, well, well, how is it that we and so many in our city, so many in the world, consistently den deny that these are babies, that these are persons, that these are truly humans? And I think John Insor has a helpful answer for us in that he says that our, if we are allowing this to happen, our conscience almost demands that somehow we're convinced they're not a person. The logic goes something like this. We think to ourselves, we would never ourselves hurt an innocent baby. And we think to ourselves, if we saw a six-month-old baby being harmed, we would intervene. But we're not intervening to stop abortion. So therefore, our consciences are somehow convinced, therefore, they must not be human because we're allowing it. We're not doing anything about it. Our self-image prevents us from seeing it that way. Friends, we must see this is the same logic that's been used in our country for two entire people groups. How is it that people enslaved Africans who were brought here? They convinced themselves they're not persons. How did our country mistreat the Native Americans? They convinced themselves they're not persons. And somehow in our conscience, we as a country, as a people, as a city, seem to be doing the same. So what we need are consciences that are awakened to see what is it. It's a person. It's a human being. Now, what are some related questions and implications? Well, a common stance is this. People often say, I'm, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm pro-choice. And perhaps that's where you are this morning. But we should consider, if you say you're personally opposed to it, why are you personally opposed to it? Which again, takes us back to the question of what is it? For if the abortion does not take the life of a baby, why be opposed to it at all? Shouldn't you be in favor of it at all times? But if the unborn is a person, doesn't that change everything? For I'm certain none of us would say, I, I'm personally against child abuse. 
but, but I defend my neighbor's right to abuse their child. Well, that's a ridiculous statement. Of course we wouldn't do that. But aren't we doing the same if, in fact, it is a child being aborted? What about the saying, women's rights are human rights? Well, Christians absolutely embrace the rights of women. Just as the early church was countercultural in their approach to infanticide, in fact, they were countercultural in their approach to women as well. Historically, the church elevated the rights of women. Read history and you'll see that it's the people of Jesus who've made plenty of errors in those areas as well and yet elevated rights of women. We do embrace the rights of women, but we also must embrace the rights of all women down to the tiniest unborn little girl who also has the same women's rights, which are Human rights, we agree. And since the unborn is a person, we have to realize that here we then would have two people and both of them, their rights must be considered. So it's a, let's say it's a pregnant mom and her unborn daughter. Both of them have human rights, we would agree. But when two legitimate rights conflict, the right not to be pregnant and the right not to have your life ended, Justice demands that we give place to the right that does the least amount of harm, the one does not, that does not willfully kill. Also a common phrase we, we hear used of reproductive rights is often used. Well, friends, we agree that women should never be forced to have sex. They should have freedom in choosing when to have sex. But what sometimes is being referred to by reproductive rights is the ability to end the reproductive process by ending the life of an unborn child. Now, some will argue, but, but you cannot legislate morality. In fact, actually, we do that all the time. In fact, all of our laws are essentially morality that we have imposed on ourselves. So, for instance, we've decided you can't speed down Beach Street legally. That you can't legally rob the bank. That's immoral. You can't rape a person. That's immoral. So in fact, we do all the time legislate morality. Now, what we, we can't legislate, we shouldn't legislate. As Christians, we don't want to try to legislate someone being a Christian. We don't think we can do that. But we all the time do together decide or set aside morality that is through our legislation. Now, someone would say, look, even after all this, it's just a complex issue. I'm not saying it's not a human, it's not a person, but I'm not sure either way. So we can't say for sure, are we taking a human life or are we not? Friend, if we say this, shouldn't we err on the side of caution? If there's any chance, whatever it is could be a person, shouldn't we say we must err on the side of caution for that? Now, some people would say, look, pro-life people don't care at all about poverty, don't care about human flourishing. So, so how do we bring children into homes that are very poor? It'll be very difficult. Well, friends, we are absolutely for human flourishing. And communities and states and nations, Christians, the church should work against poverty wherever we can and care for the least. And what's the most fundamental level of human flourishing? It is to alive. So the argument for abortion is that we know best, that it's better to end their life than to bring them into a challenging circumstances of life. How do we get to set ourselves up to make that decision? How do we get to decide this baby, this life is not valuable instead of give them a chance to flourish in this world? There's so many other related questions. If you're interested in talking more, I'd be glad to arrange a conversation. So you can note that on the Connect card. And just know that no question will be off limits. No pushback would be seen as offensive by me. So this is an important topic. And so I, I would welcome any conversation that you'd like to have. Now, I know some of you might be thinking this morning, look, you want me to become a conservative Republican. That's really what this is about. Is you want me to be a pro-life conservative Republican. Friend, to be clear, I'm not here to point you to any political party. 
This topic does at times have political implications, but this is so much bigger than politics. The fact is, I think many supposedly pro-life politicians are only that to get votes and to raise money. I think it's been used again and again by many who they themselves would do nothing to advance this. And it's so very rare that any politicians have been willing to, to risk their career for it. I'm glad to use it to raise money. But on the other hand, to choose not to be for the life of the unborn because you don't want to share a view with a Republican, honestly, is just as silly as Republicans who shun caring for the environment because they think that's a Democrat issue. Liberals have a, a right and godly impulse to care for the least. That's a good impulse. We say that, that impulse actually is based in Christianity. Friends, if you're a liberal, then why not speak up for the unborn? They have no power. They truly have no voice. So, so they're the least of the least. So why wouldn't the liberal impulse be to speak up for It's encouraging to me that so many younger Christians in particular are motivated by the gospel to engage in justice in a number of areas of our society, calling attention to areas of injustice, advocating for change, laboring to bring about real change. And that is so good in a way that previous generations, including my generation, did not engage effectively. But at the same time, so often those same people, when the topic of abortion is raised, the voices for justice go silent. Some say, well, it's just too complicated. Many say, well, it's just primarily a political issue of the right. Friends, let me ask you, how is abortion not a tremendously important justice issue? Not the only justice issue. Not by any means. How is it not important when since 1973, in the U.S. alone, 65 million babies have been aborted? And if there were a disease or a circumstance in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts so that two children every hour died, I'm confident we as a commonwealth would rally together to try to address that. But statistically, that's what happens per year, equivalent to two babies every hour. So it'd be 48 just this weekend. As we think about justice, there also is an unmistakable racial dimension to abortion in America that often isn't talked about. In 2021, 10% of pregnancies among white women ended in abortion, while 33% of pregnancies among black women ended in abortion. There are surely numerous factors that are involved in anyone choosing to have an abortion. Our friends, there would be millions and millions more black Americans except for abortion. And I would encourage you, if you do a little study of examining where are abortion clinics located around the country, you'll often find them in more economically challenged communities and very often near or in communities of color. So friend, if you want to work against racism, and I hope that you do, we should. Do you see there's a racial dimension to abortion? And friends, what if, by the power and grace of God, there were a church, there were churches filled with Christians who mourned the brokenness of our world, who wept with those who weep? but who also courageously tried to serve women facing unplanned pregnancies, who sought to love and care for men and women who've had abortions as they processed the pain of that, a church that advocated for foster care and for adoption, and people who were scattered into the city working for good, working so that in one little community, abortion would become more and more unthinkable. And what if by God's grace, over time, it became unthinkable for that to happen more broadly in society, just like the transformation in the first century in the Roman Empire? 
happens. That is what we pray for and hope for. Friends, we need to feel the weight and the crushing magnitude of this. But aside from hope in Christ, it truly would crush us. So where do we find hope and strength? Where do we find grace and mercy? Friends, it is in Jesus who came to rescue us. So we can only do any rescuing of babies because Jesus first rescued us. For Jesus Christ, God the Son came into this world and he took on flesh. He was an embryo. And then a fetus. And then a newborn baby. And he walked the earth displaying mercy and compassion, love, teaching truth, pointing to his kingdom. And then ultimately Jesus would go to the cross, that there on the cross he would die in the place of sinners and rebels like us. So he would pay for all of our sins, the most hidden and horrific sins, the most longstanding and the most powerful sins paid for through Christ's death on the cross. He was buried and raised so that this free gift of salvation could be offered to any and all, including us. And in this gift is reconciliation with God, forgiveness of our sins, a new heart, a a new life, life eternal, adoption into God's own family. And friend, if you're not a Christian, I recognize that probably in a lot of ways what I've said this morning may seem outrageous, might be offensive, I do hope you'll come back in coming weeks. We eventually get away from really controversial topics. We're not always there. And the sermons aren't always an hour long. Hope is coming. But most of all, friend, we want you to consider Jesus. The grace that's found in him. And friends, for those of us who are Christians, there is grace for us. There is forgiveness for where you may have participated or encouraged someone else to have an abortion. When there is grace and healing for you if you've had an abortion. There is grace and forgiveness for us, we, myself, who've been apathetic at times, unengaged as we should have been. Friends, we seek to rescue, not because we're so good, because our God is good, because our Savior is good. So what are some things that we close that we could do to engage? So first, friend, there's room for probably everyone in the room to repent. Repent of sins committed or sins of omission. We've not been engaged. We've not taken action. Pray. Pray that we could grasp grasp the depth of this issue. Pray that we wouldn't ignore this. Pray that we'd have courage Pray for those who help to prevent abortion. Pray for those who currently lead the abortion movement. We, we do not hate them. We must passionately pray for them, for a change of heart in them. Let me also encourage you, educate yourself. Use your mind to understand what happens in abortion. Use your imagination and, and fight the temptation that we all have, which is to avert the eyes of our hearts. We, we don't want to think about this. We don't want to consider how prevalent it is in our society. So you'll have to fight against that. Friends, share this information with others. The way people will be convinced is not by some person in one talk convincing them, but it will be through conversation with trusted friends, listening, engaging, wrestling. But also give financially to those who are working to save unborn children. The sad truth is aborting babies is financially profitable. Rescuing babies is incredibly costly. They're not government funds to support rescuing babies. There are a couple of pregnancy centers in our city that that seek to care for moms facing unwanted, unplanned pregnancies. So two of those we support are one's called Your Options Medical in Revere and the one called Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices, which is located in Chinatown. And in the foyer, there's a table from Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices that tell you a variety of ways that you could uh, support them, that you could pray for them, that you could even volunteer there with them. And they're always raising support. And so there's some baby bottles there. And what the, the, the way it works is you would just take this baby bottle with you. And over the next month, you could just fill it up with change. And then you'll bring it back, 
and then we'll just pass it on to them. All those funds will go to them. So fill it up with all your pennies or all your $100 bills or just write a big check and put it in there. Friends, it's a helpful way to give. You might also begin to volunteer at one of these centers to give your time to care for others. It might be that you have the opportunity to open your home to a pregnant mother. Friend, if we say we're going to care, we have to care in very tangible ways. So it's a woman with an unplanned pregnancy and she has nowhere else to go. Will the church, will God's people welcome her into our home? Consider adopting a child. Consider fostering. There's a a wonderful organization in New England called uh, Fostering Hope New England. Paige Brooks is a part of our church. We'd be happy to tell you more about that. It's a wonderful ministry to join in fostering children. As parents, parents, we must teach our kids in age-appropriate ways over the years. For they will grow up just breathing the air of a certain worldview that will seem to be the only rational view. So will you teach them? And where you have opportunity, work for the protection of the unborn legally. Some of you are law school students. Facing the question of what will you do vocationally? It might be that God would stir some of you to use your career for this purpose. And together as a church, we must bear one another's burdens. So friend, if you're here and you've had an abortion, you've encouraged an abortion in the past, we, we don't want you to carry the weight of that alone. It's too much to bear. We want you to know there's grace and forgiveness, that you are welcomed here, that we care for you. Don't carry the burden of a future difficult situation. If in the future you find yourself with an unplanned pregnancy, don't run from the church in that. Let the church bear that burden, care for you and the child together. Friends, let's pray that we who are created in the image of God might be marked by wisdom and compassion and love, and also courage.